Good morning, church. We continue in our series in Hebrews today. We are still in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14 and continuing through verse 16. I want to make you aware of a change that is in process with our online giving system. For any of you who use online giving uh, to do automatic, automated giving or you, you visit the online presence, perhaps monthly or weekly or however you do it. Um, we are changing vendors for our online giving, and you should have received a notice, particularly if you are set up for a recurring gift, to make you aware of that. And, and it provides you with prompts to set up the new um, online giving within the new system, and then you'll want to go back into Easy Tithe, which is what we had, and delete that gift. If you are unaware of how to do either one of those two steps, please just call the church office and we can help you walk through that. If you can get the first half done, which is setting up the new gift, we can delete the old gift on the back end. What we don't want to do is charge you twice. I mean, unless, of course, you want to give twice, which that's between you and the Lord. But we don't want to do that accidentally as we make this transition. So please pay attention to that. Uh, this is, is part of a opportunity for the church to have a, an app and uh, much more convenient resources, not just in giving, but in watching sermons that you miss and a whole host of other things, scheduling, calendaring, etc. And so uh, we're moving vendors because this vendor is able to integrate more easily with a church-based application website and, and those sorts of things. So if you'll pay, pay attention to that, I'd be grateful. And the, and the other thing is, I want to remind you of um, before we dive into the text this morning, as it relates to giving, is that's something we should always be evaluating. Uh, we, we have a tendency to, to set it and forget it, particularly if we do it online, which is great because you don't forget, but the downside is because you don't forget, sometimes we forget to assess. So, you know, if God's blessed you with a raise or something like that, then we certainly want to um, think about that as we respond to God and our stewardship. So I wanted to make you aware of that. If you have any questions, please call the church office, and Cindy will be able to help you get everything worked out. All right, Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, is where we'll, we'll be today. And I, I want to introduce it briefly in this way. Um, at every turn, the book of Hebrews has been showing us that since Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant, in all of its dimensions, since the new covenant is better than the old, forsaking Jesus is fatal. That's what Hebrews is showing us. Jesus is better or greater than the angels through whom the law was given. He's better than Moses to whom the law was given. He's better than Joshua who took God's people into the land because he actually takes us into God's heavenly rest. And now, the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 4, verse 14, and going all the way through chapter 10, he's going to show us that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. All those priests who served in the tabernacle and then in the temple, Jesus is better than any of them because he offers a better offering and he offers better access to God. He's not just a sinful priest. He's not a sinful priest in our place. He's a sinless priest in behalf of sinners. The sinless Son of God once for all in our place. So that's, this is the beginning transition from 
really the first section of Hebrews into this really long section in which the author is going to show us that Jesus is high priest. So would you hear with me the word of God? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence through the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are always in time of need. There's no time that we don't need you. Teach our hearts, God, to hold fast this morning and to draw near. God, remind us that apart from you, we can do nothing, but in you, we are more than conquerors. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This text shows us really three things. Transitioning out of the theme of entering into God's Sabbath rest, we see that word, therefore. So if we're going to enter the Sabbath rest of God, if we're going to remain faithful and not draw away from the faith that we have in Jesus and therefore perish in the wilderness, if those things are not going to happen, we see three things that we must do in this text. First, we must hold fast to our confession. Second, we must recognize the help that's available from Jesus, our sinless high priest. But it's not enough just to recognize that Jesus can help you. You need to access the help that he offers. And to access the help that Jesus has available, you've got to draw near to God through continual and confident prayer. Last week, we saw in verses 12 and 13, that, excuse me, verses 11, 12, and 13, that God's word exposes us before God as sinners with no hope of changing that on our own. Our primary deficiency before God is not our money, it's not our status, our fame, our intellect. Our primary deficiency is us, our sinful, rebellious, faint, and fickle hearts. And adversity has a way. Living in the wilderness, in the place where it's dry and barren and opposed to God, adversity has a way of unearthing these things in our hearts. But we must not retreat from, from God when adversity comes. Instead, we must hold fast to our confession, verse 14. In verse 14, the author of Hebrews returns to this theme of the high priesthood of Jesus, which he introduced all the way back at the end of chapter 2. The affirmation and explanation of Jesus as our great high priest stands at the very center of the book of Hebrews, spanning from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 10. Jesus is our great high priest. You might say it's a bit redundant to say that he's not just high priest, but our great high priest. There's no other priest that is greater. He's forever superior to all other high priests. In verse 14, we're reminded of three important truths about Jesus, who is our great high priest. First, do you see it there? He, his ministry takes place in the heavens where God dwells. He passed through, meaning he has entered into the heavens. We have an advocate with God our Father who serves not in an earthly tabernacle, not in an earthly temple, but in the very heavenly sanctuary where God dwells. 
Jesus is the priest who did not have to be washed of his own sins and who therefore could offer his own blood to make purification for sins. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus serves on behalf of God's people in the heavens. He's also, do you see that word our? He's our high priest. He's a priest that we have. Having, therefore, we keep on having. There's no time if you trust in Christ that you do not have as your great high priest, the King of glory, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that His sacrifice is forever accepted in the presence of God. So we must not retreat from this Jesus. We must not retreat from Him because it's only through Him that we have access to the very presence of God. He is in the heavens. Second. We see that our great high priest is the one who is given the name Jesus. Our great high priest is not Mary. Our great high priest is no dead pope. Our great high priest is not St. Francis or St. Hootie Doody or any other saint that someone might tell you that you need to pray to. You don't need to pray to a saint. You don't need to pray to your grandfather. You don't need to pray to anyone else who was mortal and died and has not yet been raised because they can't save you. They can offer nothing to atone for your sins. Only Jesus, our great high priest, can deliver. Only Jesus, our great high priest, can intercede for you. Only He can represent you in a way before the Father that will qualify you to know the presence of of God. He's Jesus, the one born of a human to be the substitute sacrifice for sinful people, and he's enough. Jesus was a man. He really lived. He really died. He really conquered the grave because he's not only Jesus the man, but also Jesus the Son of God. As we've already seen, the Son of God is also God the Son, greater than the angels because he made the angels. Greater than Moses because he didn't just come to be the servant of God, but he's also the builder of the house. And not just the house, but all the things that are created. Jesus can bring us to God because he's God. And as God, he can give us the righteousness of God. Our great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. The Son who was promised in the Old Testament and the Son that the Father provided in the New Testament. You see, the search for a son is over. The quest for the king is over. We know who he is. His name is Jesus. Why would we retreat from faith in this great king and the son of God? And because this is true, because Jesus is God's final word, do you see the urgency in verse 14? In the middle of adversity, in the middle of heartache, in the middle of hardship, in the middle of the muck and the mire of our lives, let us hold fast our confession. Can you think of a more needful statement in our culture and in our day than those words, let us hold fast our confession? We, together, us, must hold fast to our confession. That which we believe and affirm about Jesus, we must not let it go. Notice it's our confession. It's not your confession and my confession. 
individually and independently of one another. It is our confession. It's a common body of faith that we confess about Jesus, that we hold in community with other Christians. We need one another for encouragement. We need one another for admonition. We need one another to be able to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs about this Jesus that we confess. This is not private, individualized Christianity where I go over and I think about my confession for weeks and months and years and never have contact or community with other Christians. It is our confession and we hold it closely. We hold it fast. A little sidebar. I am a wretched sinner saved by the blood of Jesus. I can't understand the Jesus that I confess and His worth apart from my real awareness of my sin. I praise God for using His Word and other Christians like my parents and good friends in college and seminary to help me see the sin in my life. It is not an act of hate, church, to call sin, sin. It is not an act of hate to pray that people who are trapped in patterns of sin would be changed by Jesus and transformed into new creations who are no longer slaves to sin. It is not an act of hate to support organizations that celebrate to not support organizations that celebrate sin. If we lose the sinfulness of sin in an effort to be embraced and liked and tolerated by the world, if we lose the bad news that necessitates the good news about the Jesus we serve and proclaim, then we no longer have need for a great high priest to bring us to God and we lose our confession and surrender the need for our salvation. We are living in days in which we've got to hold fast to our confession even though it will cost us. We hold fast to that which we treasure. Do we not? I remember when Elizabeth was just six months old and Stacy uh, had read like 75 sleep books on how to get your baby to sleep through the night. And then she should have written her own because she did a masterful job. I was like, you need to write a book. None of these others worked, but she grabbed pieces from every one and put together the, the system that worked beautifully for Elizabeth. Of course, it didn't work, work a lick for Samuel, but we're great. We're great for Elizabeth. And, and we got into routines, right? So it was predictable. And one of those triggers for her was, hey, look, after a bath, we're going to bed, and that means you're going to go to sleep. And it, it worked like a charm. So every night I would give her a bath. You say, well, baby doesn't need a bath every night. You're right. But... She needs to sleep every night so that I can sleep. And it was working beautifully, but what wasn't working beautifully was my lower back. And, and I, it was hurting, it was sore, but I wasn't thinking too much about it. And Elizabeth, if you met my daughter, you know she's pretty active. She's been that way from the very beginning. I mean, like in utero, just crazy all the time. And she, uh, the toilets are right here. That's an important detail. The tub's over here. And she would always, the water came out of the tub up here, and she would always want to go to the deep end, right? She would always scooch down, and so I'm always having to pull her back. She's going to flop over and drown on me. So I'm pulling her back, pulling her back, pulling her back. And one day, it, it just happened. I, I grabbed her, and I got her out of the water, and I would just kind of let the water drip, and then I would pull her over, and I'd put her in, a, put her in the towel, and 
I went and I got her like this, and I got to right here, and I didn't have a back anymore. I could feel her slipping through my hands, and I could do nothing. And I began to yell out, Stacy, 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 and I think she thought I was joking because it seemed to take her an eternity to get there. And it hurt. Every second that passed was pain in my back, but I didn't let my little girl go. I was not going to drop her because I treasured her. And in the middle of adversity, when it's painful to follow Jesus, when it costs you something to follow Jesus, you've got to prize Jesus more than the momentary relief that you think would come from letting him go and doing your own thing. Hold fast to Jesus. No matter what it costs you, no matter how painful it may seem, he is worth it. And to hold fast to our confession, we've got to know our confession, church. We confess that God's, what do we confess? We confess that God's word, as originally given and accurately transmitted in the multitude of manuscripts available to us, is inspired by God in its entirety without error. And if that is true, God has spoken and we must submit the totality of our lives to the authority of God by submitting our lives to God's word. We confess that sinners are broken by sin in all sorts of ways. We confess that Christ alone can heal our brokenness because He took on our humanity to live the life we should have lived and die the death that we deserve to die so that He could conquer it through His resurrection so that we could be cleansed of our sin, changed and forgiven and raised up with Him at His return. We confess that the only hope for sinners is that they hear and believe the gospel and be saved by God's gift of Christ Jesus in our place. We confess that God saved us to spend our lives for His glory by getting His glorious message of salvation through Christ alone to all kinds of people from all walks of life, speaking all kinds of languages, living in all kinds of places, and trapped in all kinds of sin and suffering and shame until Christ returns or He calls us home. We confess that we've been bought at the high price of God's Son. There is nothing in our lives over which Jesus does not have absolute authority, not our careers or our marriages or our parenting or our retirement or our grandparents or our educational choices or our finances or our calendar. We confess that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is Lord, the one God raised from the dead, and that if He is risen, we have no fear in death or ridicule or any other hardship because His resurrection is the proof that our resurrection is on the way. This is the Jesus we confess, and we must hold Him fast. So what do we do when it's costly to follow Jesus? We do not modify, hide, or minimize, or apologize for our confession because this generation's apology is the next generation's abandonment of truth. We don't hold fast to popularity, profitability, likability, convenience, or cultural relevance. Rather, we keep coming together week in and week out, and we hold fast our confession, never letting go of our great need and God's great provision for us through Jesus and Jesus alone. Secondly, not only do we hold fast our confession, we recognize that, that it's not easy. And as we recognize that it's not easy, we look to Jesus 
the model and the example and the source of victory in a broken world. In the background of verse 15, you can almost hear the skeptic saying, but Jesus is up in heaven and I'm down here where life is hard. What do I do about that? So in verse 15, the author reminds us Jesus still can identify with us in our condition. Though he entered the heavenlies, he did not stop being a human being. He didn't forget what life is like in this world. As O'Brien writes, believers have in heaven a high priest with an unequaled capacity for empathizing with them in all their weaknesses that result in sin. In the Greek language, it's acceptable to use a double negative. My kids are learning the English language, and if I use a double negative, they call me out pretty quickly. But in the Greek, it's okay. And in verse 15, the author says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. And what he's saying is, we do have a great high priest. We really do have a great high priest who can empathize, an amazing high priest who knows what we face. You see the word sympathize in verse 15? No one can sympathize with you like Jesus can. The word sympathize was used in the Greek to describe a mother's feeling for her children when she was feeding them. Sympathizing is more than just a common understanding. It's identifying with someone in their need and desiring and even delighting to give them help. Jesus can sympathize with us because he became like us and he, because he did that, he loves to give his people help. You ever feel like you're asking Jesus for a favor that he wouldn't like to help you with? Wrong. Jesus wants to help. He delights to help. But you've got to look to Jesus. The reason we need help is because we have weaknesses, don't we? Do we, do we like to admit our weaknesses? I mean, isn't that the dreaded job interview question? Well, tell me about your strengths. And your weaknesses. How do you answer that? I mean, how do you answer the question of your weaknesses on a job interview where you're trying to demonstrate that you've got the strengths and the skills for the job? Well, I mean, sometimes I get a little tired of winning at whatever I do. My last boss told me to stop getting my projects done so efficiently and with such quality because I was embarrassing all the other team members. Well, some people say I have too many strengths. I mean, how do you answer the question, what are your weaknesses? Our flesh does not like to admit its weaknesses, does it? But winning in the Christian life requires knowing and admitting our weaknesses. Notice that weaknesses are our weaknesses. They're common to all of us. None of us is immune. Even the author of Hebrews, the one writing inspired scripture, says our weaknesses. He's got some. The pastor has some. You have some, we all have some, and they're, they're common to man. We have more than one weakness too, by the way. That job interview question, you're trying to come up with like one weakness that doesn't sound bad, but the author of Hebrews says we've got a lot of them. I'll tell you mine. I'm generally happiest when I'm most comfortable and things are going well. I'm often tempted to trust my circumstances more than my Savior. I really like to please people. 
And I struggle most when doing what God says doesn't align with what people want because I like being liked. My mind gets really tired after a couple of long days in a row, and when I get tired, I lose my focus and find it easier to respond in anger or bitterness or frustration rather than love. I could go on, but I suspect you have your own. And quite frankly, they are all of ours. We are weak apart from Christ. These are not excuses, by the way, that justify our sinning. But they are weaknesses that lead to sin unless we look to Jesus. Did you know that Jesus did not come to validate our excuses, but to deliver us from our weaknesses? So often I get in a pastoral counseling situation and all I hear is weaknesses. I mean, all I hear is excuses. Well, I did this because I have this weakness. I did this because I have this weakness. I did this because somebody did this to me. I did this because I was betrayed. I did this because my brother so-and-so. I did this because my dad. I did this because my mom. I did this because, 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 because. You know what Jesus says? I face down every weakness you've got. And I did it without sinning. And I'll help you do the same. Does Jesus really know what I'm facing? Does He know what my life is like? He knows like it better than anybody else. The, the Bible says right here in verse 15, He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows your weaknesses, and He conquered them. It was Jesus who was fully man but did not sin, which, by the way, means that sin is not an essential part of our humanity, but a perversion of it. Jesus was, in a sense, more truly human than anyone else in history. The only human who faced down every temptation and won. How? Through unflinching faith in the Father all the way to Calvary. You were tired and tempted to quit on the way to church this morning. Just give up and go back to bed. Jesus knows tired. You aren't really looking forward to Thanksgiving because you know your faith is going to be mocked one more time by your family. Jesus knows rejection by His family. Jesus knows the pain of ridicule and He also knows the power of restraint. He knows the sting of betrayal by His friend at the table before He went to the cross and it could have weakened His resolve, but He kept going all the way to Calvary to redeem you and me, whatever you face in the way of temptation, Jesus understands it, and He can help you face it without sin. Gentlemen, Jesus saw beautiful women during His ministry, and He never surrendered to lust. He was offered a bite of food in the wilderness after a 40-day fast, and He chose to be filled by the filled up to overflowing by doing the will of His Father rather than eating of the food. Whatever our weaknesses, whether they come by our eyes, by our appetites, by our ears, by what we say, by what we touch, Jesus has proven that our weaknesses can be overcome by faith in God. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give in to temptation. In every scenario you have faced or will face in life, Jesus has paid the path of obedience by faith under great pressure. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide 
the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. What is the way of escape? It comes not only by knowing our weaknesses and not only by looking to Jesus, our great high priest, but finally by accessing the help that God has available to us through Jesus. How? By drawing near. Thirdly, by drawing near to God through continual and confident prayer. We have seen that Jesus is transcendent, He is in the heavens over all, and that He is tender. He is able to identify with you in the details and the minutia of your life right now. He's over all, and He's in the midst of our lives. This is why some have called these verses, 14 through 16, some of the most comforting verses in the entire Bible. But if we miss verse 16... We're not going to benefit from them. Verse 16 is the climax and the conclusion of this paragraph. It's like the author is saying, look, I I told you who Jesus is, that he can identify with you in your weaknesses, that he can give you access into the heavenlies so that you will overcome temptation by faith. But you've got to access God's help through prayer. You've got to draw near. You've got to get into his presence through prayer. Right belief and doctrine are very important. Our confession is essential. But so are the daily disciplines of walking with God, drawing near to Him. We must know the one true God. We must know what He is like. But we must also know who He is. So the author of Hebrews closes with this admonition. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Once more, the author includes himself, us, we, all of us, keep on drawing near to God's presence. Because Jesus, our high priest, has entered the heavens, all who trust in Him have access to God. Far too many Christians treat their access to the presence of God like they treat an unused gym membership. It doesn't do you much good. An unused gym membership will not make your body stronger. It will not make your vitals any better at your next checkup. And a doctrinally precise definition of who God is, oh, I could pass every theology exam, but if you have all that without consistent and confident entry into the presence of God through prayer, it will not lead to a victorious Christian life. You've got to have consistency and confidence in your prayer consistency, this drawing near is in the present tense. We must keep on drawing near. Consistency, you say, well, I don't know how to be consistent in my prayer life. Well, consistency comes from a recognition of our ongoing need for God to strengthen us. That I can't do it. I need God to apply the work and the power of Christ in my life right where I need it, right on time. That's where consistency comes from. Consistency comes from dependency upon God. And confidence. Confidence comes from an awareness of God's strength and His greatness. We don't have confidence in ourselves. We don't even have confidence in prayer itself. We have confidence in the one to whom we pray. There's power in prayer because we're praying to the God of all power. It's God who has the power. 
So we have confidence in God who is strong and is great and is able and ready to help. We draw near to Him in prayer and we find immediate access into His presence where there is complete freedom. That word confidence means freedom, joyful confidence, boldness to tell Him of our weakness and to get help from God through Jesus our High Priest. This is amazing. If Jesus did not stand for us in the heavens as our high priest, we could not stand before God. But because He does, we can boldly go into the presence of God consistently and confidently. We can come to God through the finished work of Jesus and the throne of grace. Do you see that in verse 16? We can come to the throne of grace. The throne of God for those who believe in Jesus is not a throne of wrath, but a throne of grace. As O'Brien writes, the heavenly throne where Jesus, the true high priest, has ministered is the source of God's gracious assistance. So when we are tested as a church or in our individual lives, we draw near so that we can receive help from God Himself. Do you see that in the second half of verse 16? When we draw near to God, we access help from God. Schreiner says it this way, God's grace is poured out as believers request, request help when they are overwhelmed. Are you overwhelmed today? Run into the presence of God. Draw near through Jesus. When the costs of following Jesus seem too great, we boldly and confidently enter His presence fully aware of our weaknesses, and there we find in the presence of God mercy and grace, God's divine help, undeserved and boundless in our time of need. So how is it with you this morning? Perhaps it's been too long since you acknowledged your weaknesses and took them to Jesus, right into God's presence at the throne of grace. Today we invite you to hold fast the Christ we confess, who has conquered your sin, who has mercifully covered the sins of your past, and who will graciously deliver you in a time of need. We invite you to come to Jesus today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. We thank you for the admonition to hold fast and to draw near. And God, for those who today, if they're honest with themselves, have been trying to live the Christian life in their own power, for those who've been trying to solve their problems at work or in their marriage or in, in their other relationships in their own power, for those who've been trying to overcome temptation in their own power, I pray, God, today that they would be resolved to hold fast to the truth that Jesus is their only hope to look to Jesus for help, and then to run into the presence of God through prayer with confidence that Christ will deliver. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.